this is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for Saturday, June 30th, 2018. And uh, the only thing, honestly, the only thing I can think of when I hear 2018 is that we are steadily moving forward to the time when... Uh, Blade Runner will be actual news. I cannot wait to see all the off-world colonies and human androids and everything from Blade Runner. Does that excite you? I can't wait, to be honest. I'm going to get my very own replicant. Um, I want to get a, like, I was going to see one of the flying cars, but then I'm also caught on, like, the massive gun he had that shot holes in walls and stuff. I'm kind of torn between those two. Do, do I have to wait till 2049 to get the uh, holographic girlfriend, though? <laughs> uh, yeah, that seems like a, a step backwards in technology. I'm pretty sure we're gonna have we're gonna have girlfriend robots well before we give flying cars and uh, and sentient androids. Uh, or or free floating holograms. That's pretty. Pretty far off, I would uh, I would imagine. Um, before we jump into the absolutely awesome topic of the show that we have thoroughly planned out in advance, scripted almost, how was your week? It's been really good. Actually, I wanted to talk about uh, Origins a little bit, because I missed last week and I didn't really give a report. We had the... Live broadcast from the show. I don't from the floor. I don't remember if that was last week though. That was a yeah. That was a couple weeks ago. Last um, week, last weekend, I was still asleep for my big trip. Oh, that's right. Cause you were all jet lagged. It was fun. But, I mean, uh, you, you went to Europe. You went to Latvia, India. Estonia, Lithuania. One of those. Yeah, I went to went to Estonia and then India and then came back. It's sad that I can only remember the Baltic states as like one unit. Um, that, that means, I can't that, pick out one of them. That means that you're old. Hmm. Oh, that's uh, right. I was around when the Soviet Union was around. Uh-huh. I actually, I have literally gone to uh, Checkpoint Charlie and the Berlin Wall, folks. I, I have gone through Eastern Germany when there was an Eastern Germany. Um, Soviet soldiers inspecting our car, uh, sticking a big mirror underneath it to make sure we weren't smuggling anyone in. Um, it was a trip. Uh, so I'm, we're the last generation uh, who will literally the last generation to remember when the Soviet Union was a going concern and not just like something you see in alternate history TV shows or in uh, or in scary political ads these days because you know the Russians. Yes, Russian collusion. Speaking um, of speaking of Russian bots, uh, another thing happened to me this week. Is that through at normal usage of Twitter <laughs> at work, I was flagged for suspicious activity. Uh, I th I think Twitter thinks I'm I'm a a bot, a bot or something. If you if you tweet out or retweet too many um, comments that are not way to the left, then they demand that you provide them with a the phone number 
um, in order, and they say it's because, well, we think you're doing suspicious things, but really they demand that you provide them with a phone number so they can keep track of you so that, uh, you know, when the, when the left-wing left -wing dictators grab power in the country, they have your name in a file and they're ready to send out all the stormtroopers into the streets of your hometown and grab you up, just like Red Dawn. Bring that back to the USSR. Yeah, it's it, the the text is your account appears to have exhibited automated behavior that violates the Twitter rules. Uh, I I don't know how clicking a couple of follows and clicking a couple of retweets over the course of an hour looks automated to anybody, but there you have it. Oh, it, it, it's a lie. That that's the the third law, Daddy Warpig's third law of twittering. There, um, the third law is, of course. Twitter staff is corrupt, so abuse happens. Abuse does actually happen. Um, the first law is that Twitter is so poorly programmed, is so buggy, that normal functionality looks like uh, abuse or corruption. And the second law is Twitter is so badly designed that intended functionality is impossible to distinguish from malice. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> uh -huh. I haven't had good and warm and fuzzy experiences on Twitter. It's, it, it's funny that it's pretty much what we have because it's, it's an unfortunate platform run by unfortunate people. And yet it's really effective for certain things. Um, it's more effective at reaching people that you wouldn't have been other to reach other, wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise than any other social media platform like uh, Instagram or, or Google Plus or um, Facebook. Instagram because it's all about pretty pretty people taking pictures of themselves, taking fake pictures of themselves to make all their followers feel jealous. Um, then you have Facebook, which is. Uh, it's about confusing the user as much as possible in order to hide how much uh, you're giving information to the company to sell you to advertisers. Uh, and then, of course, Google+, Plus, which is all about uh, diehard geeks refusing to give up control of the one platform they've managed to get an iron grip on uh, in this, you know, this half of the uh, first couple of decades of the century. And then there's Twitter which has used to have everybody on it is extremely flat. That is, you can get, you can go from just you to major Hollywood stars and like a retweet or two. Um, and it encouraged uh, pithiness and encouraged, uh, you know, concision in your tweets. And so it had a, a lot of effectiveness that has been well exploited um, by certain anti-SJW movements and also uh, right-wing people, people who are not left-wing, to spread information. And, of course, that's got notice, which brings the crackdown, which is probably what happened to your account. Well, that's what I get for following and retweeting all those anti-Semites. Yes. Evil people. Um, so that, that's, that's a joke, everybody. It is a joke. It is a joke. Just for the sarcasm, I, I actually did this for the first time today on a tweet. I actually included a tag for the sarcasm impaired um, to let them know that this is just sarcasm. So 
Um, they are out there, the sarcasm-impaired people. A lot of them are good people. A lot of them show up in, especially in computer programming, playing video game fans, and role-playing game fans, tabletop role-playing fans. <clears throat> a large slice of those people are sarcasm-impaired. So, uh, you know, it'd be nice if we had, if we could hire a woman to, uh, uh, to do sign language for the sarcasm-impaired or the equivalent of it to translate for them. Did you see that tweet about the Eminem concert? I saw that. I, I saw that. Uh, someone was actually doing sign language for a rap show, which I didn't even realize that there was a demand for that. That's incredible. In, she was jamming. She was. It was absolutely incredible. I also did not realize that was a thing. I didn't know they hired people uh, to do sign interpretation and that's why i'm not being sexist folks I'm, I'm making a reference to this specific video we need to have like the equivalent of her um hanging around for the sarcasm impaired to translate into non-sarcastic language so even though they won't you know really fully get the joke at least they'll understand the intended meaning well meaning. i don't i don't know if we could afford her but we should get someone to do sign language on the uh on the podcast so that people viewing it on youtube can you know, the people who are impaired can view us on YouTube and hang out with us. I will. I will put that on the. Uh, I will put that on the to-do list when we have the budget for it. Did you know we have an official budget now? Do we? We do. I have formed, um, because of some things, and I don't know exactly how much I can talk about. Um, there was an issue that happened with some stuff of mine showing up in places where it wasn't supposed to be. And so I hired a lawyer. We spent, I got loans from a couple of people um, to pay for the lawyer. And then we spent some time discussing things with the people in question. And then there was a settlement. Um, and because of that settlement, I got the money I needed to form an official corporation, a limited liability corporation, and also buy some new equipment, which was direly, direly needed. Uh, my computer was, up until yesterday, at about 4 p.m., uh, was seven years old. Seven years old. Huh. Well, now this this is good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've got the budget and got you some new gear. You know what this means, right? I do not. No more technical difficulties on the Geek Gap. You <laughs> yeah. heard it here. Yeah, we wish. You um, heard it here. Hey, Wolfman at Large in the chat says that getting an uh, interpreter is a good excuse to hire a hot chick in a chainmail bikini. Now, I, I think that's that, that's a little too distracting. That sends the wrong message. We want people to be able to view the hand signals and everything. I think the chainmail bikinis <laughs> a little too distracting. Uh, we should probably just have her do it nude. Um, I do want to make a serious point, though. Something I've, I had pounded home to me uh, in the last couple of days with my new computer. Um, so I formed an LLC. I paid back the loans I got, and it was just enough money left over for a new computer and a bunch of research material uh, for the project I'm working on, um, which progress is proceeding apace. Lots of things are being done. Great, new, and exciting things are happening, and they are just not in a form where I can talk about them in public yet. 
But uh, every single day I'm doing work, I'm doing research, I'm doing brainstorming, I'm coming up with ideas, I am uh, formulating long-term plans and short-term plans, I am creating characters and doing a whole bunch of stuff to get this ready. It is great and it's exciting and I want to be able to talk about it. I just don't think it's the right time today. But um, I got, when I bought my computer in 2011, I bought the top of the line computer that was available to me at the time. It's an Apple computer. It's a Macintosh. It's an iMac. Um, I've been in computing for way too long. I don't even want to do the math to figure it out. I have worked officially for um, for everybody in the online sphere. I work for AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy, uh, the Microsoft Network, and probably a couple that I've forgotten here and there. Oh, eBay. I worked for eBay for a while. Um, and I have gotten my... Um, what is it, the A-plus certification for building your own PC. I was officially certified by Microsoft to know how to put together computer hardware and to lead other people how to put together computer hardware on the phone. So I'm not ignorant about computers. I choose to use uh, Macs. I choose to use the Apple uh, I, uh, OS X um, because they're, they do what I need it to do. My machine is, is a production machine. It used to be back in the 90s when I had a computer, I'd tinker with it all the time. I'd, I'd mess with it all the time because that was part of my hobby. That was part of my fun is trying out different things and um, extensions that would change the look of the windows and, and whatnot. But ever since about 2000, my machine became a production machine where I stopped tinkering with it because I had so much work to do, I didn't have time. And so I just needed to sit there and do what I needed to do. And so I've been moving from computer to computer on the same project. This project officially began in the year 2000. And um, I have changed computers four or five times. And I keep on moving from computer to computer. So I've learned a lot about it. I thought in 2011, when I bought a top-of-the-line computer, it had the largest size hard drive. It had a solid-state drive in it, had the max amount of video RAM, uh, max amount of RAM in the machine. Um, in it, everything that you could do, it was literally top of the line. So I, and the reason why it was a smart idea, even though it was a, uh, even though I could have gotten a similar computer for a lot less, is because after seven years, it's still really good. It still works. It's still fast enough to run almost everything um, I need it to. The only reason why I had to buy a new computer wasn't because the processor was too slow. It was because uh, the computer itself is dying. After seven years of heavy use uh, for all of those years, it was in a very, very dusty environment. I had to have the computer taken into a service shop to get dust cleaned out of it three times. And it was in a very hot environment. And so it caused a lot of damage to the internals of the machine. And it finally just is, is giving out. It's on the very verge of collapse. So the new computer that I got, I did the exact same thing. I have got top-of-the-line computer, the top-of-the-line Mac, not the iMac Pro, but top-of-the-line iMac. Uh, it's a 27-inch monitor. I technically have a 5K monitor. Um, 
So that's a lot of monitor. <laughs> it's it's designed. The monitor itself is designed so that people who need to edit 4K video have enough room on the screen for the 4K video and um, all the Chrome to do the editing with, all the controls and timelines and stuff. So I got a 5K monitor um, and everything else is maxed out. The only thing I didn't have maxed out in the box when I ship it is RAM. If you buy from Apple, never, ever, 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 if you buy an iMac or an iMac Pro or a Mac Pro or a MacBook, whatever, don't ever buy more RAM than they ship with it, than the basic amount. Let it go. And then when you get the machine, take it to someone else who is qualified to stick RAM in there. Because the amount of RAM I'm going to put in this machine costs about $700. Um, Holy smokes. But if I was buying that from Apple, it costs $1,400. So mm -hmm. I saved $700. Uh, I'm getting 64 gigabytes of RAM in this machine. That's fantastic. Um, it was awesome yesterday because I got this machine five days early. It got to me in the mail, physically, in a box, in the mail, five days early, uh, which is fantastic. You're like, wow. But literally, one of my roommates was bringing it into the room, and I was looking at this box, and then I was thinking, in my mind is, what the hell are you doing with that? That's not for me. That's obviously for our other roommate who gets packages every day. And then, no, it was for me. Brand new computer, got to bust it out. But I am uh, getting 64 gigabytes of RAM I installed, so I, I got my new computer yesterday. I was all excited. I wanted to see, you know, what eight megabytes of video RAM would do, what the new, brand new hard drive would do. Um, and I installed StarCraft II, because I own it, uh, from Blizzard. And I went to it, and I opened up the window that uh, to set all the graphics options, because I wanted to see what I could do. And it pops up a little message that says, we have set the graphics settings in this game to the default recommended for your video card. And I'm like, great, that's awesome. I want to see what the default recommendations for my video card are. And I went down the list for everything in every single category. I tried to screenshot this. Unfortunately, Blizzard doesn't like that. They take over your keyboards. So you can't screenshot. You can't screenshot anything when their program is running. But every single option said ultra, 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 ultra. <laughs> the default settings for this video card on this machine are the best you can get. Maxed out StarCraft. The only thing I saw that was turned off was something called indirect shadows. I don't know what that is. I don't know how much that would have otherwise um, enhanced my gaming experience, but I was just excited. I don't know that I've ever seen that on any game, on any machine I've ever owned. When you open it up, it says, oh yeah, you can do anything you want. Congratulations. Um, Horsepower is the best, man. That's the, I'm, I'm happy for you. Similar so, thing happened to me at work. It's it's but, a, not not quite as exciting, but I have a I have a work machine with similar 
horsepower and uh and uh i can build something that takes two and a half hours on a normal user pc takes 30 minutes it's the best absolute best like compiling or bug checking yeah or? yeah compiling um look i the, the for those of you who may not remember i work for microsoft i actually work at skype and they're one of the skype products the whole product and it's not a dinky little client product i mean some back giant back end shit i can build the whole thing in 30 minutes my own what? personal build yeah <laughs> um horse horsepower is for real man it is and here's the thing i realized i i got the computer it only has eight gigabytes of ram in it only has eight gigabytes of ram in it. i'm sorry that's just not a statement that it would have made sense to me just about any time earlier in my life. Um, but you notice now, because all the, especially if you use a web browser with several tabs open, I typically have like 10, uh, okay, that's not true. I typically usually have 40 to 50 tabs open in my web browser. In what? this- <laughs> What is wrong with you? <laughs> In this specific, using my specific computer yesterday and today, I have about 10 tabs open at any given time in my web browser. And each of those tabs is running in a, a complete instance of the rendering engine. And so um, it, it's like having 10 separate web browsers running at the same time. But you notice this when you're trying to switch between programs, when you're trying to launch programs or quit programs, that all of this raw power, all of this hardware runs super, super slow. I've got a 4.2 gigahertz Intel Core i7. And all of this power on my hard drive and my processor and my RAM is wasted because you're moving so much stuff in and out of memory you're doing page in and page out. Sorry if you, you know, if you're in the audience, you don't understand what that means. Don't worry. Those of you technologically oriented, you know what that means. You're doing so many page in and page outs. You have a massive speed hit. And so the 64 gigabytes of RAM isn't a luxury. It's actually a necessity for the kind of, for the way I use and abuse my machine. And it made me realize that um, using it with just eight gigabytes exactly what I was buying for that $700 is I was buying maybe up to seven more years of having a super zippy computer, even under insanely idiotic conditions that I use my computer on. So in all seriousness, with the kinds of programs we're running, especially if you're running anything that has some kind of built-in browser, um, it eats up RAM very, very fast. And the best thing to do, once you've got a great processor and a zippy hard drive, the best thing to do is to make sure you have more than enough RAM for what you'll be doing so that your computer never has to hit the hard drive when it's switching programs. Because switching from one program to another on a zippy, super fast processor is actually slower than on my seven-year-old computer because I don't yet have the enough RAM in this box yet. I will on Monday. I'm taking it on Monday, and I'm spending the $700 to get 64 gigabytes of RAM installed. And after that, I am 
absolutely certain I will be delighted with the speed. I can't wait for your professional, uh, professionally edited videos for, for the Geek Gab channel. Um, with, with that rig. <laughs> now, that's it. All that out of the way. Now that we have the intro out of the way, um, <laughs> 24 minutes into the show. Hey, 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 my, my week has, has been good. Uh, I, I've had a pretty good week, actually. Get, came back from that big, long vacation after Origins. Started playing D&D again. In fact, immediately queued up. I didn't even get to do laundry for an extra week after I got back. Because I immediately queued up all the, the RPGs and Gloomhaven games that I didn't play while I was in... while I was abroad. Um... Now, you had some things you wanted to talk about. You had, like, I think three things you wanted to talk about. There were, there were some things. There are some things that we can talk about. Hey, this is the Geek Gap. They're geekly things. Let, let's start off with, with the Origins. With the Origins. Well, Origins, I don't have much more to say besides what you guys saw on the other show. Uh, the folks who do the uh, players' organization for Vampire the Eternal Struggle, they have their North American championship, and they hold it at Origins every year. And the players get together beforehand and play more vampires. So there's a local pub, great place, called Fabian's in downtown Columbus. We get together every year. Or I should, I should say they get together every year. I've been there twice. Uh, the, and they play vampire tournaments for the whole week leading up to Origins. So where they're not, they're not getting more. gaming at Origins. They need to stock up on gaming beforehand. Yeah, and you have to understand that a very small minority of the players attend Origins for Origins' sake. For most of us, it's simply a venue where we play the tournament. Uh, and so the people who are, the hardcore people who are there to play nothing but vampire We'll arrive on Sunday, and we will play a tournament on Sunday. We will play two tournaments on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Thursday we'll have a tournament at Origins, and then Friday is the championship. Day one of the championship, because one day isn't enough. We call it the Week of Nightmares. Um, <laughs> I, I, I sense when that pause you were expecting me to make a comment, but I, I, I have none in my mind, though. Uh, most people laugh when they hear Week of Nightmares. Thanks for ruining it, DW. <laughs> I'm sure our awesome audience is, is laughing at that. Yeah, uh, Jeffro Johnson uh, in the chat, thanks for joining us, Jeffro, uh, mentions, uh, you know, makes a snide comment about Origins being a cesspool of sexual harassment. Yeah, it got some, it'll get a lot of bad press. A lot of bad press this year. They, the people who ran the show stepped in a big flaming bag, bag of dog shit. Uh, when they uninvited uh, Larry Correa. Uh, that was total, uh, such an unforced error. Um, and they doubled down on it, too. It's like uh, typical social justice warriors. And then uh, and then apparently there were complaints about uh, sexual harassment amongst gamers at Origins, which is... is uh, I don't know anything about it. I, I shouldn't say anything, but uh, but I am rolling my eyes over here at the whole situation. Uh, so Origins probably has to uh, clean up its act a little bit to, uh, you know, to be more welcoming to gamers and their guests. 
I, I want to mention this, interrupting the discussion, because I think it's hilarious. I just found this out. You know, there's the Twitter account that's called the Mossad. Never heard of it. Uh, it's it's supposed to actually be literally the Mossad, Israel's um, intelligence service. And they, they've gone the Wendy's route with their social media. Just trolling all day long? Yes. Uh, specifically, they pick a lot of, you know, uh, really mock-worthy figures in Palestine and Syria and stuff and, and make fun of them. Um, but they just sent out a tweet um, telling people not to... Um, they're, they're sending out opinions about the current World Cup match in nine or ten different languages. Japanese, Chinese, uh, Spanish... Um, it some kind of Eastern European, like, like Polish or Czechoslovakian or something, and also Klingon. The Mossad. Klingon. The Mossad tweets about the World Cup in Klingon. And this is an official account. This isn't a, like a. This isn't a. It's, a, uh, uh, what's the word? Proxy account or a phony account? It's it's not obviously a parody account. They haven't got a blue check. They haven't tried to get verified. And so it's like an unofficially official account. It. I don't want to say it really is the Mossad because I don't have any proof. I don't know. But they, they tweet like they were the Mossad. And, and if they're somebody in character... They're better at staying in character than Godfrey Elfwick was. Um, I actually honestly suspect it really is the Mossad. <laughs> but there's no proof. <laughs> and I just, well, and the reason why is because how many people could send out a string of tweets written in 10 foreign languages with about the World Cup with the intent of uh, and this is the, their capping tweet. They says the lesson is never have the football slash soccer debate on our timeline again. They're trolling. Wow. <laughs> um, Indonesian. It looks like there's a uh, Indonesian. I know they sent one out in Hebrew. Uh, Hindi. They sent one out in Hindi. How many people could could afford to? If you're a if you're a kid, if you're an anon, and you're sending this out. How many people could afford to just sit there and write tweets up in 10 different languages? Um, I mean, that depends. Is it just a Google Translate job or? It does not seem to be so. Hmm. Um, oh, they did hit Russian, um, Spanish. Oh, Russian spy. Um, so, yeah, it just, it's hilarious. Hey, spe speaking of the World Cup, they've been showing the daytime matches at work in the in the um, common room, and, and you know about about a third of the building is down there watching it uh, every day. It has been watching it all week, and I don't watch it. I can't stand soccer, but I did see this one great moment. There's this there's this amazing slow mo uh, of some commotion after a penalty kick. Uh, so the guy, uh, not a penalty kick, it was a uh, it wasn't mano a mano. The the teams were lined up, 
Anyway, the the guy gets a free uh, a free kick on goal, and the goalie um, traps the ball. He lands on the ball, so he's on the ground over the ball. And one of the um, one of the opponents was charging at the ball, so he's he's got all this momentum, and he basically stops and slows down, and ends up leaning over and gently touching the goalie on the back of the shoulder with his fingers, and the goalie <laughs> freaks out. The goalie's like rolling on the ground, yelling, pointing at the guy and everything. It was, it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. And I just, I turned to my, my coworkers who were watching. I'm like, this is why I don't watch soccer guys. <laughs> awesome. I've seen things like that before. Okay. So did, was there anything else you wanted to say about uh, origins before I, you know, cruelly, crudely interrupted you no it's it, it was what it was i didn't see much of the show besides what i i showed you guys i was there for the vampire um and what were the other two things you wanted to mention well there was one thing i wanted to mention i i started uh, listening to some youtube shows done by our uh, our comrade in dice uh rpg pundit he's an interesting oh, fellow i think yeah I think, I think you've talked about him before because there was a big scandal in D&D while you were like recovering oh, from jet lag. Scandal shamandal. It looked like it looked like a little internet. It's uh, pathetic, isn't it? Uh, he, mean, he, and he even tried to he even tried to coin a, a hashtag out of it. Um, and let's be honest, everybody's sick of the hashtag activism. Gamergate was like World War II, right? It was absolutely vast. It stretched across the internet. It got made into TV shows. It is still having after effects. Years later, people are still refighting the war. They think it's still going on, right? World War II, massive, gargantuan, impacted, was huge. And then there's Comics Gate, which is like the Falkland Islands War, okay? Between Britain the UK and Argentina over one set of islands. And it involves literally like five ships on either side and some Harrier jets, um, you know, islands that have a couple of hundred people on them. Okay. So you go from world war two to the Falkland islands in comics gate. And now we're down to D and D gate, right? Which is like two five-year-old kids spitting at each other on the playground. That, I'm not saying this in terms of maturity or intelligence involved. I'm just saying this in terms of scale, right? In terms of the scale of the conflict, if Gamergate is World War II, then D&D Gate is two five-year-olds spitting at each other on the playground. Yeah, and, and he's he's got this good beef with uh, a lot of the people trying to attempting to run the D and D or the RPG industry these days. And I think he, he makes a lot of good points uh, about the idea of the D and D community. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people are being introduced to D and D and role-playing games through shows. Now um, YouTube and uh, shows such as critical role, which is basically a bunch of voice actors hang around and play D and D. And it's, it's not D and D. But a lot of it, it's it, a lot of people. Oh, sorry, what I what I mean is the game they are playing is D and D. It's a version of D and D, but the show itself is not D and D. Uh, and people who 
enjoy the show aren't playing D&D. They're not really part of the D&D playing community. They're just right, they're just listening to the show cuz they like the show. Yeah, it's it's for a lot of people it's a fun and interesting show. Now, it's it's like uh, people who watch let's plays but never buy or play the video games. Exactly. I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm not saying you're bad. I'm not saying you're fake whatever. I'm just saying there are people out there who literally watch let's plays but never don't own the game and never play it. And 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 somehow this is I don't know somehow this is controversial that that he would say something like that that he would say you guys aren't really part of the community you know you're you're watching the show that's all that's all well and good but you, you don't play D&D that's that's somehow controversial hey, I don't know is is it exclusionary to exclude people who aren't doing the thing that I don't know uh yeah it's it it didn't really but where it's going is is he's actually been making some YouTube videos on his own. And and the last couple he did, I think, were actually kind of really interesting. So he's got two things going. He's, he's got a couple of his own videos. And he recently started a series called D&D, Things They Taught You Wrong on Purpose. <laughs> uh, and... And he hits the he hits the really he he goes for the low hanging fruit in his first couple of videos. Uh, he he talks about in his first video he talks about uh, balance, the idea of encounter balance and interclass balance and that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing that we've been um, those of us who've been playing for a while we have sort of been rolling our eyes at this ever since D and D third edition. Uh, where they uh, they made an obvious attempt to make all the classes balanced, make everybody feel like they can all contribute in combat the same way and whatnot. So he spends about 15 minutes uh, railing against that. And his second video is on uh, character backstory, which is, of course, the worst. Uh, you've heard me rant about the same thing. In fact, he says the same exact things that I do. Uh, so it so that means that my conclusion is that he is a very uh, experienced, learned, and astute dungeon master and commentator on it. Um, I hate to make this analogy because this analogy is always made and it's always wrong. But I'm trying to make it in a very precise way, a very exact technical way. Um, I would use the term rogue, like rogue-alike, the rogue family of games, but that's really out of vogue. Not a lot of people who aren't already ancient know that. Uh, or you, Moria, Moria, whatever. Um, there is a certain style of playing D&D, which was the original style of playing D&D, from what I know. And it could best be described as Infinity Blade or Dark Souls, where you have this dungeon you go in, characters die, you make new characters, and you go in and try it again. So if you're playing, and I don't mean this to use the phrase Dark Souls or, or Infinity Blade in a derogatory term. I'm not trying to put it down. I'm just saying this is a real style of D&D &D, and the original style of D&D. &D. And so if you are set up to play that, where characters are, to a certain extent... Uh, fungible, where if they die, you just make another one and it doesn't matter, then a backstory is mostly useless. But there are 
lots of other genres of role-playing games where backstories may be critically important, like a superhero role-playing game or something. So um, in connection with D&D, if you're playing that, you know, Dark Souls, Infinity Blade, roguelike uh, style, then backstories just get in your way. Because you're going to get attached to characters that are probably going to die as soon as you make one stupid mistake. Um, and and RPG pundit's argument is slightly different and and interesting in my opinion. Uh, he says that the purpose is to have a virtual world, a world that all the characters can inhabit, and by focusing on the characters' pre-written backstory and tailoring the campaign to that backstory, it destroys that uh, realness of the world. It puts the characters at the center of that world instead of leaving the world as it is and allowing the characters to live in it. I... Blew your mind. I can't, Blew your mind. I can't speak to his particular experience, but in my experience, that tends to not be the case. Maybe it's because of how I run my games um well if i recall you do you put a lot of work into the background of the world and and you incorporate character stories into that world whenever appropriate you, you allow the players to add to your world i think that's appropriate uh but i think where players go wrong is that they, uh, everybody nowadays is taught a version of D and D where uh, it's all about the story. Where uh, new DMs are encouraged or are told, if you're not using your players' characters' background as part of the story and making them all feel special and giving them all a moment to shine, you're DMing wrong. And that's the that's the that's the sort of thing that. Uh, that pundit's been been trying to argue against. There, there's a certain style of player who are very, very narcissistic. It's like they're not getting enough attention from their parents or from society or from whomever, and so they demand that the game be all about them. And it's like, well, dude, you know what? If you got five people at the table, the game isn't always going to be about you. You're not the most specialist person at the table. Um, and your character isn't the most specialist character in existence. I was speaking with uh, with someone at a board game uh, group, who was uh, it, it was really delightful because it was an older woman, and uh, she said, "Oh, I finally started playing D and D. I've never played it before." And I was like, "Oh, that's wonderful! Uh, you know, tell me about it." And then she says, "Oh, I've got this great elven druid," and she just starts going on about her character, and and I just I just in, internally, I just wall up and I go, "Oh God, she's, of course, she's learned that style of D and D. That's what she thinks uh, is important." Uh, no, nobody told her that that nobody else at the table cares about your your particular character. Yeah, it just if if she's you have bad. this, I'm glad she's having fun. Like I'm glad she's having a lot of fun, and apparently the other people she's playing with is having fun. So. All the best. If you have a super keeny neat backstory, great. That that's great for you. But the game master doesn't have to pay attention to it. He doesn't have to focus on it all the time. 
because there's a game going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's uh, that's not how I do things. It was really nice, and 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 this this will this will be uh, related. I played a bunch of D and D, including one of my players invited me to play in a game, and he's going to do the Curse of Strahd, which is just a uh, fifth edition port of the in original Ravenloft adventure. Okay. Like I one or whatever or I nine. I'm sorry. Yeah, I nine or whatever, whatever it is. Jeffro probably will read it off the top of his head in a minute. Um, um it's it it's a but anyway, he he started the game and uh we all had fun and everything. We made characters and, and stuff, but there was no game there. It was an attempt at being a story. You know, this you know this things this thing happens and and every time we attempt to interact with the with the story sorry with the um world the it it turned out that there was some really important npc that we had to interact with and that sort of thing and and we spent about an hour before we got to um the main town Barovia, and then it became like a real actual game like it, like we had a map of the town here's the entrance uh you know the streets go left and right which way do you want to go we actually started interacting with the game world meaningfully about an hour into the game and afterwards and, and he's, a, he's a new dm and afterwards the dm was asking for advice and i had to say uh look any and all boredom felt at that table was 100 percent the result of scenario design like you are running a fifth edition adventure. This is this is what it is. And I couldn't wait to get back to um, executing my own game, which was not as strict as a Gygaxian, you know, adventure. And and I am still using fifth edition as my system, sort of. But it was all about the game. Like, hey, you're in this spot right now. Uh, there you can you can only go certain you know you can go left right straight what do you do um in fact they had they had the to fight off a villain um in in the last session but it just felt good to get back to that actually playing a game as opposed to attempting to interact with some story um by the way it's i6 i've been looking this up and if i remember correctly the i series of modules were all I, I haven't read this for a long time, so I better be quiet about it. Uh, I will misremember it. But anyways, it's I-6, Ravenloft module. And and I do have a question. Yes. I have a question for you, uh, but mostly for folks like Jeffro and RPG Pundit. We should have them on the show so I can ask them in person. And uh, and uh, and even Bradford, who writes a lot, a lot about this stuff. My interpretation of advanced Dungeons and Dragons, based on reading through the first edition player's handbook, especially the introduction, AD&D was made for the type of player that wants to have a character-centric game, a game in which their character doesn't die easily, that they can reach high levels and, and ha keep the same character from session to session, have, have a grand, you know, winding adventure. And that is the game that was given a second edition. It was it was extremely popular. And then, yeah, TSR blew up, and then Wizards of the Coast picked that back up. And Wizards of the Coast continued in that vein. And people for decades now have been learning and playing 
that sort of D and D. Um, the difficulty with advanced Dungeons and Dragons and even white box D and D and so forth is that it grew out of a milieu where everybody running the games and buying the games knew each other and shared a large body of common assumptions that was just assumed that they didn't even consciously recognize were assumptions that were actually key parts of running the game and that when they published it as a book and gave it to someone who'd never played D&D before who didn't have those assumptions baked in they did not know how to run the game in the same way that the pioneers who created it did and i say that not i'm not insulting them it was a brand new phenomenon they were didn't know it was going to be as popular as it was they were making these books and sending them out and seeing a lot of success so no one really had the opportunity yet to understand that it wasn't until competitors came along who needed to earn their way into an audience that they had to understand, okay, there are some core assumptions about how a game is being played, and we need to explicitly, um, we need to explicitly communicate that to players in the rulebook. And it wasn't even until the 90s, so right, 20 years later, 25 years later, that people began doing that. And even then, they didn't do it uh, necessarily well because they didn't know when they first published their games what those assumptions were. I'm thinking of Shadowrun First Edition. Shadowrun First Edition came out. Nobody knew what a Shadowrun game was. Nobody knew how to play a Shadowrun game. Even if you bought the book, you didn't know what a Shadowrun was supposed to be. And I assert that the people who published the game didn't know what a shadow run was supposed to entail until the very first module, which was DNA slash DOA, came out. And then you got, okay, this is legwork. You do legwork, you, you get hired, you negotiate a fee, you do legwork, and then you go on a run, and then you deal with the after effects of that run, okay? That's what a Shadowrun module is. Nobody knew that until DNA DOA was published and until the other follow-up modules were published. And then they published second edition Shadowrun, which had all that in it explicitly from the beginning because now people knew what Shadowrun was supposed to be. You needed something to show people what your game is supposed to be. And that's why introductory modules were a great thing for D&D if they're done right, because they can communicate to people what D&D was supposed to be. They didn't know they had to do that. They did not realize that when D&D became popular, that they needed to teach people what D&D was supposed to be. Um, so AD&D, if there were assumptions about what players should do or whether or not um, first-level characters should survive more frequently in an AD&D game than they tended to do in a Holmes game or in a white box game. Those assumptions were likely implicit, and I doubt very much it formed an explicit goal in designing the game because that just wasn't Gary's mindset. And again, I'm not trying to put him down. I'm not trying to, to criticize him. I'm just saying that wasn't a direction his mind had to go because all the people he knew and all the people he played with already knew what D&D was supposed to be and everybody else didn't necessarily know that. 
Hmm, good point. Did, did that answer your question? I think so. It was it was more of a I I wanted to fig help try and figure out how did we get to where we are because the that play style and and the point I was coming to that play style that D and D became that's what D and D is now guys that D and D became it's extremely popular. We got to this point where the original style of play was lost because when they designed. AD&D, and when they designed the five-colored box D&D, which is the first version I really had a chance to play, um, basic, you know, expert, companion, master, immortals, although really nobody really actually played much in companion or later. Uh, I know one campaign that actually ran all the way through up till the end of uh, master. They were all 36 level by the end of the campaign, but um, the... Uh, the reason why it was lost is because they published two huge generations of games, AD&D and then BASIC, BECMI, that left out how to play D&D. And people started playing D&D the way they thought fantasy should go um, or the way the modules were written for it. Like Dragonlance. Oh, man, Dragonlance was awful. Um, in, in, I'm not saying the modules were bad, but the framing of Dragonlance as a whole was bad. Let me let me stick a pin in that for just a second. There was not an effort made to communicate how to properly play D&D to people who were just picking up D&D with AD&D in the stores or just going into Walden Books and buying the red box, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons with a big gold dragon on the cover and, um, you know, with that cool module with uh, um, all these... Uh, where you first meet a bunch of different monsters. There wasn't an effort made to communicate how to play D&D in this style that had been up to now. Um, what did I just... Oh, Dragonlance. Okay, here's here's Dragonlance. You want to talk about backstory ruining a game. I think Dragonlance... I think the modules themselves were awesome. I, or at least several of the modules I've seen were really, really good modules by themselves. If you took them out of the Dragonlance universe, I think that first module, uh, Dragonlance number one, could be a great module. It's very, it's a very uh, traditional dungeon crawler. Once you get to the underground city, I think that that part of it can make a great module. Um, but the framework of the game, the setup where the game was, you were given pre-generated characters on cards. And your characters were high level. I, I may remember fifth level. They may be higher. I, I forget. Um, and when you get together at the end of the last something or other, in the last home, in the last leaf, whatever, um, you read your backstory of what happened during the years since your adventuring group broke up. So you're given explicit characters who were explicitly part of an adventuring group years before who broke up and are now coming back together again, and you're being given this backstory for them to read. Um, and then, uh, if you want to play your own character, you have nothing. They explicitly cut you all out of it. You don't get a chance to tell a cool story. You don't get a chance to make up your cool story. You don't get a chance to, you know, take part, uh, take pl the place of one of these grand, glorious characters that they made and tell their story. Now, a lot of people have said that this module had a great big impact and that that's where people got addicted to backstories from. I don't know that was the case. I don't know that this module created that problem as much as this module 
um, sort of reflected it. That that previous habit of playing, that previous style of playing had dropped off, and this is the new way that, that was kind of organically emerging, um, which is completely different uh, from the old way. And then the game has sort of drifted ever since because it's not under the control of a creator with a strong creative vision, right? It's under the control of a successive generations of people um, because there's no mission statement, because there's no, this is what D&D is that people can point to. It just kind of meanders. And a lot of the concepts that are in the game, nobody really understands what they originally were, like lawful and chaotic, right? Nobody understands what lawful and chaotic were originally supposed to be and how they operated in, uh, like, say, keep on the borderlands. By the way, I'm, I'm stealing a lot of this from uh, Jeffro and other people, so I'm, I'm repeating their uh, arguments, their positions. Um, but they're accurate, as far as I've seen. So D&D didn't have the play style explicitly communicated to new generations of players and DMs. And because of that, because there was no central explicit statement of a play style, or even implicit statement of a play style, it just began to meander and mutate. And each new generation of people comes up with great new ideas that they borrow from other people pulling it out of their butts sometimes and tries to implement that in the game to make it better and you get trash like fourth edition uh which came from story gaming which came from the forge which is absolutely the gns theory which was just abominable it was a disaster and every every game designer who has tried to incorporate the GNS theory from the Forge has either made hyper-focused boutique games that are really, really restrictive, uh, or they've made trash that's failed in the marketplace and people have hated it. Um, and I'm glad to, you know, it, it's past now. Very few people still remember it and hold to it. And uh, even places where it was very strong, this GNS theory, uh, gamer narrativist simulationist theory, um, like RPG.net, which you know basically bans you if you uh, if you um, critique it, if you say it's wrong. Even those places have moved on from advocating for it. They're just now really pissed off, and they'll ban you for saying it's wrong. They've given up the fight. They just uh, like to get their strikes in for revenge against people who don't like it. Um, it wandered away because no one had bothered to set it down in paper explicitly where everyone could read it and understand it and build towards that concept of D&D. There needed to be a statement at the beginning of the book, this is how you play the game. You have a dungeon, you go into the dungeon, you fight monsters, you outwit devious traps. If you get killed, you roll up a new character or you take one of your hirelings and play them and you overcome the dungeon, you go back, take care of things, and go back in and try again with your new character. That was not, and obviously there has to be more to it than that, but that's the core. That was not explicitly communicated, and uh, as a result, D&D just mutated away from its uh, roots. Jeffro Johnson in the chat uh, raises the same point that had just come to my mind. Uh, that basic D&D has a different type of system mastery. Basic D&D's system forces players to learn how to cooperate more and think laterally. And I realized that uh, because I've been running my game for a couple of years now, and 
the characters have no reason to use hirelings. They've got no reason to work together with NPCs or monsters or anything like that. It's They can pretty much do everything they want, and if they want to solve most problems with violence, with combat, they're capable. Um, 12th level sorcerers are not a big deal for them. They can handle it. Uh, it's, it makes for a really strange game, and that's why I say that I maintain that 5th edition is a superheroes game. I, uh... I have played several times under the same GM who himself doesn't think laterally. And so you kind of get punished as a player for trying to come up with off-the-wall, oddball solutions that don't involve just straight up, you know, I rolled a hit, I rolled damage, I rolled a hit, I rolled damage. And it's kind of frustrating because especially with, I don't know why, but even systems as disparate, as very different as um, we're playing 40K's uh, Imperial Guard system. Uh, and in playing the new Star Wars system with the strange funky dice that I, I hate that system and I hate those dice. Um, those are two extremely different systems. And yet in them, the same problem comes up, which is as soon as you roll dice, you're going to lose. Because when you roll badly, you get punished for it, and bad stuff happens. And so what you want to do, and I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying they should change the design of the rules. I'm just saying what that makes you do is that you try as much as possible to arrange things so that you never have to roll dice. So that your victory can come with intelligently creating strategies, and you roll the dice as little as possible. You, your ideal game is one in which you never had to roll the dice because stupid, bad things happen when you roll the dice. Um, and so if that's the system you're running, you have to be, as a game master, open to people trying to think of every cockamamie way they can come up with to avoid rolling dice. To just set things up where they don't have to roll dice. And when you have a player who comes up with an intelligent plan that needs GM education that says, okay, yes, I think that can work. Okay, I think it doesn't work. Or even just, you know, it's really straightforward. Like, I want to go into town and find an inn. Well, you should be able to go into a moderate or small sized town and ask a normal person, hey, is there an inn here? And just get to go to the inn. You shouldn't have to roll streetwise checks or whatever mechanic your game has for that. You should just be able to do some things automatically because you're role playing them. And if you're role playing them and you come up with the right answer, you should get the success. You shouldn't be told, yes, you've done everything right. You've approached the situation perfectly, but now we're going to let the dice decide. That punishes people for rolling the dice. It punishes people uh, for intelligent thinking and trying to reason your way through a situation. And that's absolutely not what game masters should do. Players who engage with the world as a world, who look at the details of the world they're in and try to think up ways to use what's in the world to accomplish their goals and get the right answer should be rewarded for it, not forced to do the exact same thing that the drooling moron on the other end of the table who isn't even really paying attention, he's just rolling dice, 
is doing. When you force both of those players into the same framework of accomplishing success, you're punishing hard work, you're punishing intelligent play, and I think that's a bad dynamic at the table. Are you still there? Are you stunned? Are you trying to... You got me. <laughs> I was just letting that sink sink in. I um, I don't I don't have anything to add. I mean, I could I could state it more concisely if uh, if it needs to be stated more concisely. Um, games that have random penalties for failure are fine if your GM is willing to allow players to engage directly with the world and avoid rolling the dice so that the dice don't blow up in their faces. If your GM treats intelligent players who engage with the world, who find out about characters, find out about NPCs, find out about NPCs' personality, find out about technology or magic in the world, and then use it in an intelligent fashion. If your GM puts that on the exact same level as just Rolling the dice without thinking about it, you're punishing good role playing. Yeah, of course. I think I see this on a smaller scale, just in combat. Uh, it's sort of a silly example, but I, I don't like critical hits, uh, and I especially don't like critical fumbles. I uh, just, uh, it's not quite the same, but it's that sort of it's that punishment feeling for for playing the game the way you're supposed to play. Uh, it cuts out a lot of the fun. When you get crit, anyway. I, I wonder if if you had a, a game masters who were properly raised, I would say, I don't know what the correct term is right now, to reward detailed engagement in the world. You know, okay, well, I ask about the king. Is he, is he greedy? Yeah, he's greedy. Okay, I get uh, 100 gold pieces. And I take it to his major domo and say, you know, we notice that your castle needs some extra upkeep, uh, allow us to donate for um, whatever, and then, you know, will you let us, uh, and then kind of casually mention, hey, you know, uh, we need to get fast. Okay, so you have a situation where there's a greedy official, you found out about it, you're engaging with him as if he's real, okay, let's appeal to his greed. That's what you want. That's what you want to encourage. And if you appeal to his greed and you get the right answer, um, you know, let's say the wrong answer is appear to his gluttony. You bring him a, a big barrel of beer and the queen, the king is a to teetotaler. He doesn't drink alcohol. Okay, so you failed. You failed. You don't get to roll because you failed. If you bring him money, you succeed. You don't have to roll because you succeeded. If you're game includes, and this is just a, a question I have, a wonder I have, if with the right DM who's willing to allow players to succeed or fail based on what they do, primarily on what they do, not just on the dice, and there are huge negatives to, you know, balance with huge positives to rolling the dice, I wonder if that will drive players to engage with the world more or if it just makes players who do engage with the world frustrated more because of GMs who don't do things that way. Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Do you, uh, 
does changing the incentives just ruin the experience or does it get you the desi desired behavior? Well, you'll have to experiment on it. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it until right now is, uh, you know, these negative incentives for rolling the dice drove me to not roll the dice ever because I, I hate getting screwed by bad dice rolls. And so I'm wondering if that translates to other characters or if that's just a peculiar reaction of mine, other players, or if that's just a peculiar reaction of mine. Um, so I don't know. It's worth thinking about. That's just a, a wonder I have. I'm not coming down on the on an exact position with that. It's just something I wonder about. Um, the, we've been having a huge uh, a storm of a chat uh, today. Uh, Jeffro's here. You know, we want to welcome Jeffro and uh, Bradford Walker, uh, Adam, all the rest of uh, everybody who showed up. Um, is uh, is there anything interesting in the chat that we should talk about? Oh, they've just been following along the conversation. Uh, talking about players who drive you nuts with uh, playing a, the game like a video game. Uh, Jeffro Johnson mentioned uh, when we were talking about interacting with the world, he mentioned that there's a game master who set up a, a great module in a pyramid, a great big pyramid that has panels that came off as you delved deeper into the dungeon. He said that... Uh, the guy who ran it lamented that he run the scenarios 20 times. No one had ever tried swinging from the chandeliers in the <laughs> dungeon. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if all you want to do is just... And, and see, this is part of the problem with the old-school-style grid or hex play, because often you're, you're going to get in that mode where you're like, I'm in the dungeon, these are my choices, and a fight breaks out, and all of a sudden you've got this menu of things to do and you just like, you stop thinking about the world as a game world and you start thinking of it as a, you know, this, the tactical board game where you need to crush your opponents, that sort of thing. And especially in modern D and D where uh, it's set up like a video game where the correct answer is usually to trade blows because you, uh, you know, the, the game is structured so that you will probably win. And if you take too many losses, you'll, get a rest and recover some of your resources that sort of thing so it's I, that's one of the problem with that sort of grid that tactical grid type game because sometimes you, people get into that mindset and it's hard to break them out and, and actually interact with the world as a world that's a tough balance to strike the the wonder i have is is it possible to train game masters because what i sense with certain game masters is not that they're, they hate doing things that way. Except that they don't know how. And it's so easy to do it the other way. Um, it's, it is really truthfully easier to say, oh, if you want to climb this wall, make an athletics check. You know, climb. I'm referring to something that's in the chat right now. Make an athletics check, and if you do, you climb it. That's easy. And then you just extend that to everything in the game. Right, because that's how combat is. You extend it from combat into wall climbing, into hiding in shadows, and then you extend that into uh, sweet talking NPCs. It's easy. Game masters can easily see how to run the game, but in order to, it, it, it's it's not satisfying to me. It's not satisfying to a lot of players, and there's a better way to run the game. And this can apply to any genre. I'm not specifically talking about D&D &D now. 
a better way to run the game is to say, okay, you're looking at this door. Um, you know, it's of X and such type wood. You, there's a carved scene on the front of it. What do you do? I rolled a, you know, pick locks. That's one way to do it. Or you could say, wait a minute. Uh, is there a laurel leaf on this tree? And you ask that because uh, you know that this particular dungeon used to be a temple of a god and laurel leaves were, um, were holy to this god. And the game master says, yes, there is a, a set of laurel leaves that are pointing down. And the player goes, wait a minute. Um, all of the statues we've seen so far, all of the you know, um, portraits we've seen so far, all the tapestries you've seen so far, the laurel leaves have been uh, pointed up. I, I look closer at the laurel leaves. Well, you notice that the wood around them is kind of scratched up. Okay, well, I, I, I try to turn that. Does it turn? I try to turn it upright, and the door opens. That is more rewarding. That is a more rewarding style of play than just I roll the dice. And my point is, and I'm actually getting back to the thought I had, is it possible to train dungeon masters or game masters into engaging in the world, in the reality, in the physical, tangible reality of the world with players? Is it possible to train them so that they're calm, confident in doing that, they're comfortable with doing that, and so they get away from the default, um, the default uh mode of play the easy mode of play which is you have some numbers i have some numbers roll dice we'll see if you win amen that's just a question i have i i don't like to think that there are just some dms who are naturally better and you can't train anyone to get better i i i really don't think that's the truth i don't want to you know absolutely do not say that that's the truth well and i mean they so, uh, they can. I did. I I started off with story time, D and D, and I couldn't run that game, and and I learned, you know, some standard, by now standard uh, old school or OSR techniques, and and that's the way I like to run the game. I don't even do the full original D and D strict timekeeping sort of dungeon crawl thing, but you can learn how to how to run a game the old way. Um. All right. Uh, do we have any uh, any other questions we want to go over? Oh, I don't have any. Chat's been busy, but nobody's been asking any specific questions. Okay. Um, we do have one final comment from Jeffro, which is uh, Infocom's Zork, Wishbringer, and Enchanter games encapsulate how D&D was played at MIT in the 70s, and they can teach some of what uh, I'm talking about here to, to game masters. Um so, food for thought. Okay, and, and I want to remind people that uh, most of my last, you know, last 20 minutes have been me asking questions, not me trying to present absolute answers. They're intended as food for thought with some of my reasoning behind it, not intended as to say, yes, this is absolutely how it is. There are other things I've said this is absolutely how it is in the, in the show, but those were just questions. They were, uh, or not questions, they're ruminations that I'm gonna take on board and think about. And when I try to, when I'm designing my own game, um, 
Because this massive project I talked about at the beginning of the show uh, does involve a role-playing game. It does involve a role-playing system. It involves a uh, role-playing setting. And it involves uh, fictional stories uh, in that setting. So three aspects of it. I have done a lot of research on role-playing games, a lot of thinking about role-playing games, um, to try and hone a system. And I guess my major goal is to drive player and DM interest in the game world as a world so they engage with it as if it were a real place in the sense that they think about the setting, the situations they're in, and they try to act in those situations, not taking into account primarily numbers, not taking into account die rolls, but taking into account what is the situation you are in what are your characters going to do to get a you know to get through this situation with a with the result you want? Um, so, description from the game master is key to that, but also players willing to engage with the world and not just with the dice is also key. And again, there isn't a whole lot game designers can do to force that on the table. There isn't a whole lot they can do to, much like the government, there isn't much they can do to make things right, but there's a whole hell of a lot they can do to ruin things. So game designers are very, very limited in what they can do to make things go right at the table, but they are, uh, you know, they are vested with almost infinite power to make them go very, very wrong. Um, not quite infinite power, but almost infinite power, because you can kitbash a game together, even a terrible game, and can kitbash together to make it work. So my goal when I'm designing not just the rules, but the philosophy of how those rules are used, how to apply them to a game, and this is, you know, this is an ongoing process. I'm still learning. I'm still thinking about it. And I'm still trying to apply it. Uh, I'm still noodling my way through it, um, is how do I, as a game designer, when I put the mechanics together, and then when I describe how the mechanics should work to players or GMs, what can I do to make sure that my mechanics get out of the way of engaging with the world as if it were real, and that I try to teach people how to do it? Because it's just, it's much, much more interesting to do it my way. Um, or, and I'm not saying it's my exclusively. Lots of people do it. Um, you know, you tell people, okay, you're at a border crossing, it's locked, um, there's a bunch of cars piled up, people are getting out, they're getting angry, and we'll just say zombies for the second, and you can see behind you, um, you know, the horde of zombies you've been rushing away from are getting closer and closer, what do you do? Well, as a game master, you just quickly describe the situation, your player characters, ideally, your players, sorry, ideally should ask you, okay, we you know, what else is going on? Uh, what are the cars we have available here? Do we have weapons? Do other people have weapons? How many border guards are there? You give them details that are concrete that describe the reality of the game world. And then instead of saying, uh, well, I want to drive, I roll a charisma check. They say, I want to, you know, talk to the guard or whatever they want to do. Okay. That guy over there, he has a semi, right? Yes. This is just a wooden barrier. There's no actual barriers here. No, there's no fencing or whatever. Well, I'm not waiting for the zombies to get here. I'm going to go back to the truck. Uh, I'm going to get into the semi, and we're going to drive right through this barricade. And if the guards get on our way, we're going to run them the hell over. Okay. 
That's looking at the reality of the world, looking at the situation, and coming up with a, a solution. Intimidating the guards. Try to, you know, threaten them. May work, may not. Try to bribe them. May work, may not. Try to pull rank on them. Maybe you have some sort of official rank. May work, may not. Doing this truck thing may work, may not. But if you encourage players and DMs to do it that way, to where dice rolls aren't the first, last, and only um, resort when they're playing, I believe, in my heart of hearts, it makes the game world more real, it makes the characters more real, and it drives engagement with the game. And ideally speaking, even if you're playing in that Dark Souls um, style, in that Infinity Blade style, in that roguelike style, even if characters are expected to die as soon as they make a big uh, mistake, driving the reality of the world, making the game world as vivid and concrete as you can, I think makes the game enjoyable, more enjoyable for everyone. And I think it makes players more interested in getting involved in doing things in the game. That's my theory, and I want to design things so that it supports that it gets out of the way of that play and i want to include you know that every every game has a chapter of, of usually useless gm device i want to include gm device gm advice excuse me that tries to teach gms how to do it this way so that they can get players who invest in their game and they can invest the game and everybody enjoys it more that's my goal um I'd, I'd add to that when it comes to the story gamer types. Going back to the character backstory thing. Players are going to become engaged with the world and the game through their actions and interacting with the game, not as some shared writing exercise. Uh, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're, they're not part of something bigger. They, they feel self-important because they wrote this neat story that everybody has to pay attention to but you'll get everybody engaged in the game if they're if they're interacting with the world through the game through the other people at the table um all right well we are we're well out of time <laughs> I, I believe we're, we're we're coming rapidly upon an hour over time pretty good uh, um I just want to thank everybody for showing up. We've had an absolute uh, fantastic discussion in the chat that I haven't been able to read all of it because uh, I've been talking occasionally. You may not have noticed. Um, any last words before we go? Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. It's good to have everyone in chat talking about RPGs again. Um, yeah, it's been a while since we've done an RPG show, so I'm glad we got around to that. Um, I mean, not just got around to it in the sense of a larger sense of things, but actually got around to that in this episode because we were talking about other things early on. <laughs> It was a good show. Thanks for being an awesome co-host, D-Dub. Um, you too, Dornal. Uh, thanks, everybody, who tuned in now and who are tuning in in the future. This is Geek Gab. We're here about every week, about this same time. Uh, we're also available on YouTube.com. We're available. Uh, just do a search for Geek Gab. It's YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. That's it. That's us. Or you can do a search for Geek Gab on SoundCloud, the Google Play Store, and the iTunes Store. And you can subscribe to this podcast and listen to it on any device that you want. It is set up for your convenience. We, your hosts, are leaving for today. But don't you worry. Don't you threat. We 
will be back.